Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 33. Patients are just pawns in the game. My guest, Anna Stratus, MD, is a Canadian-trained family physician with a passion for working with people in communities and improving health care and quality of life. She has a broad spectrum of experience in adult and pediatric primary care. Dr. Stratus has practiced in Canada and the United States and is volunteering at a New York City hospital during the current COVID-19 crisis. Dr. Anna Stratus, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you, Joe. It's great to join you. You've practiced in both Canada and the United States, and I was going to start with that, but then I found out you've actually been volunteering in a hospital during this crisis. I want to thank you for that and ask you, are you on the front lines and what is that like? Absolutely. Um, So yeah, I am working in a really heavily hit uh, hospital in Brooklyn. It's part of the NYC Health and Hospitals. uh, So public, uh, it's a public hospital. And um, I'm working as an attending physician, essentially overseeing the medicine wards and the admissions from the emergency department, which is almost 100%. COVID-related illness. So are you actually then taking care of patients with COVID? Yes. Having said that, I I have to say that our nurses, our physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and residents are doing all the heavy lifting, but I am assessing patients and overseeing their care and at their bedside. And do you and the nurses have all the personal protection equipment that you need? You know, I would say, yes, I'm fine. But if we were to compare this to pre-COVID, this is obviously where we're, the guidelines have changed because we're not operating as we did. So I have an N95 respirator mask, and that's meant to last me five days. Mm. So I'm wearing it with every patient, shift after shift until it becomes untenable. And then on top of that, we're putting surgical masks on, which we change a bit more frequently. Right now, we have enough gowns, but, you know, the thrust of it is not to change a gown with every patient as we did, as we would in a traditional ID or universal uh, contact precautions. Instead, we're just kind of wearing the gowns for all patients from bed to bed. Um, Gloves haven't run out, but same thing. We're just wearing gloves from bed to bed. Doesn't that increase the risk, not only for the doctors and nurses, but also for the patients? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The fact that I have an N95 respirator makes me really uh, feel grateful. The fact that there that we haven't run out of gowns yet, like the other hospitals have, makes me feel grateful. But if I were to compare to the guidelines that I used to follow, um, we're absolutely working in inadequate conditions. There's no question. And it's funny. And then the second thing that I want to say there is, oh, but you know, I worried about my colleagues, right? Because I. I, I'm like, I'm fine, but I just want my colleagues to remain safe. Mm-hmm. So for them, I want more protection. That's always the kind of the knee-jerk reaction that I have. 
And one of the things, normally you would change gown gloves and N95 masks with each patient, correct? Absolutely. So, again, thank you. Now, you have worked both as a doctor in Canada in the United States. And, of course, um, Canada has a single-payer system. What are the advantages of working in Canada's system as a doctor? As a doctor, I I am working in a system that puts patients first as well as puts the providers first. And a lot of Canadians who haven't seen the US system up close would disagree with me, but you know, as I look back over the border from the US perspective, I say, gosh, that single payer system, it was stripped of all the nonsense. It was very simple, streamlined. You go in, here's your health card, we'll give you care. So as a as a as a provider, as a physician, I don't have to worry if my person has coverage. I don't have to worry about ridiculous things being declined and fights and, you know, having to spend hours on the phone with insurance companies. And I don't have to do a, a lot of documentation that wastes my time and takes away my morale. So I can spend a lot more time focused on patients. Now, you said a lot of nonsense, but before we get to that, in the doctors and nurses that I've interviewed, they said they will sometimes spend hours and days fighting insurance companies. Say a patient needs something, how long does it take you to fill out the record and get what you need in Canada? That's a great question. I actually don't remember things being declined in Canada. So every province has a formulary. Certainly, if you want to use some really expensive, wacky drug, definitely you're going to have to uh, really make a case for it. But, you know, usually... Um, you know, in the hospital setting, reasonable drug uh, drugs are covered, you know, for, for cancer patients, reasonable things are covered, surgeries, et cetera. We don't actually, so like in the course of, um, of treating a patient, both in an inpatient and an outpatient setting, I'm not worried about whether something is going to be declined or not. It sounds crazy. And again, a lot of Canadian doctors would say, no, that's not true. But as I look back over the border, what the physician says is is necessary is taken with a lot of power by the provincial uh, um, payers in terms of uh, um, healthcare coverage. So when I say my patient needs this ultrasound or this MRI now, I'm able to pick up a phone and get it to happen because at the end of the day, there's not going to be at the ultimately there's not going to be a lot of pushback because it's me talking. I have a lot of power as a family doctor. In Canada, my voice speaks, and if I'm on my game and if I'm doing my advocacy work, things will move and things will be covered. So basically, it happens very quickly. You don't have to fight. It's maybe you fill out the um, record form, the database, or you just make one call and you're done. Yeah, I would say maybe to to think about something like an MRI, right? Um, you know, if I have a person who has had sort of a, I examine a knee and I say, ah, it's maybe a partial tear. Okay, we'll, we'll put you in line for, for an MRI. It may be a few months. I'm not going to lie. But if I have somebody who I say, that is cancer, I am, I'm, I'm writing the same requisition, the same order form, but I'm, you know, bold letters, 
stat needs to be done right now. I may give a call to the radiologist to say I need this done. I'm known to be a good doctor. So the radiologist says, yeah, absolutely. We'll get them in today. We'll get them in tomorrow. And that happens. You know, from time to diagnosis, oh, that's breast cancer. They are in a top center in Toronto within a week's time starting treatment. So, so it's not even a matter of coverage. It's just a matter of as a family doctor and an advocate, when I write my order form in Canada, I'm, it, it's, it's the, the way in which I request it and, and possibly the bells and whistles of a phone call that will actually get that done. So there's no, it's not a coverage thing per se. It's just a matter of advocating for my patients so that the order gets to the top of the queue based on priority. And, and that's my job as a family doctor in Canada to just make sure the people who can wait will wait. But the people who need to be served right now, I will make sure hell or high water that that happens. And I'd like you to explain how that helps the patient, although that may be obvious, but explain that and then contrast that with your experience in the United States. Yeah, so in Canada, I don't really face an issue, you know, now, I, I should say there's a few things that are not covered by our single-payer system, which is very notably our medications, physical therapy, chiropractor, and a few other things, and dentistry. So let's keep that to the side. But it, when it comes to outpatient and inpatient services, investigations, et cetera, and treatment, um, I don't have to worry about a, a, an applying for coverage situation in most cases. It's just a matter of, as a, as a, as a doctor in Canada, I think about a queue. I think about other people waiting in line for specialists and and uh, and in imaging, etc. But I know that my system in Canada will prioritize things that are more urgent, and it is flexible. And I have always had a sense of flexibility because I consider myself a good family doctor and a good advocate. So, so, so that benefits patients because I know that we can change prioritization and timing based on who needs what when. And as a, as a doctor and as somebody who is interested in public health, that is the way the systems should work. Systems should be flexible to move so that the patients who don't need something right away can kind of step aside and say, okay, yes, you go first. And that is the way to run any reasonable system because not every healthcare need is immediate. Some can wait a little bit. So here in the U.S. is that that's where there is there are coverage barriers. There are insurance companies that say, uh, you know, that put up these silly, stupid rules all over the place. So in order to get over that hurdle, I'm spending hours of paperwork or I'm spending these ridiculous sessions with, you know, with, with physicians that the insurance company has hired at a pretty penny to try to decline my patient care. So here I am in these tense, sweaty, I'm on the phone with this doctor. We're having this like cat and mouse game where I'm trying to get my patient more coverage to stay in a skilled nursing facility longer because they're not safe to go home. And then this doctor is playing this card game with me to try to prove to me that he's going to decline the claim. It, it gets scary. And ultimately, as you can see, the patient is a pawn on the chessboard. They mean nothing to the system. They are just a widget. When I have to have a peer-to-peer -peer with a a doctor representing the insurance company whose job it is to decline claims. Um, I'm kind of the person in the middle, but my patient is the last thing that they care about. And that is terrifying. Um, not only is it also something where we, I have to fight for something to be, get covered, I have to do ridiculous things to kind of 
for the insurance company to justify coverage. So one thing that's really bizarre here in the U.S. is when I send a patient for physical therapy, and I do that all the time because I love physical therapy. It's a wonderful treatment modality. I get these ridiculous faxed forms, eight to 10 pages each. Every time the patient goes for physical therapy three times a week, the physical therapist has to fax me their entire report. I have to print the entire thing out, wasting a bunch of trees. I have to sign that darn report and fax it back to them so that insurance will cover physical therapy. Uh, that is ridiculous. In Canada, when I send somebody for physical therapy, I say, do physical therapy. The government is like, yeah, we'll cover six weeks. I don't see, I, mean, I may see reports, but there's nothing I need to sign because a single payer system knows that chasing that paper back and forth is so financially, um, um, what is the word I'm trying to say? Well, it's um, a waste of time and money. It's inefficient to police this, these daily transactions of physical therapy with these ridiculous, like, doctor has to sign everything. So a single-payer system just sees the forest for the trees and knows, look, let that person go for physical therapy, and I'm going to trust that that physical therapy is not going to squander the system. And we're not going to have to keep putting silly paperwork in front of these doctors who should be spending their time face-to-face -to -face touching patients. Have you ever had a situation where a patient's on a medication and just suddenly the insurance company changes and so you have to change the medication? Like an oh my gosh, all the time. For like and asthma or something? Oh, and I tell patients, I say, this is the Russian roulette that the, your insurance plays. One day your diabetes medication is covered, the next day it's not. So here's what I have to do. We have to all jump hoops together. So I tell my patients, I say, look, if ever there's a time where all of a sudden the pharmacy say this is not covered, I need you to tell me, the pharmacy to call me, somebody, because it's just a matter. And now, of course, again, that's, that's wasting half an hour of my time that should be used in patient care so that I can check and see what alternative drugs will be covered. So it's kind of like whack-a-mole. So I'm, I'm having to play whack-a-mole. Oh, that's not covered today? Okay, I call the pharmacy. Is X covered? Is Y covered? Is Z covered? And, and a lot of the systems won't tell you which alternatives are, aren't covered, so I have to play the guessing game. But I'll play it to get my patients covered. Now, now if, they, if they switch so that nothing is covered, then I spend, again, another half hour, 45 minutes printing good Rx coupons for my patients. And I'm calling the pharmacy. I'm getting them all their thing. I'm, I'm looking online for prices. Um, so I spend a lot of time with my patients figuring out how we can get around ridiculous changes in drug coverage. Like you mentioned, the ones that are specifically affected are these insanely expensive inhalers for asthma and COPD um, and diabetes medications. They just changed today, something different. And those are the big classes of drugs where the, where the, pharma, the pharma industry just loves to play whack-a-mole. And one of the things, they're on medications that have proven effective. So if you have to make a change, isn't it sometimes true that the medications are not as effective for the patient? As that's 100% true, especially when I have to change drug class. So in the world of diabetes, if all of a sudden a certain drug class, um, let's say a long-acting, like a basal insulin, if the insurance company has decided carte blanche, they're not going to cover everything and I have to change to another drug class, you know, it's so funny. You, you raise this and I realize it's like, 
I'm in a war zone, whatever I have to do with what I've got. But if I sit back and say, is this best for the patient? I can say, absolutely not. But you know what? I have to find them an alternative that's better than nothing. So I, I, I just kind of go to work. The people, the number of people on asthma who have asthma and COPD who are on inferior treatment because their inhalers are not covered is criminal. I, I have so many patients who I wish that I could have them on a, on a standard. You know, this is the weird thing. Insurance companies, when it comes to inhaled therapies, they do not cover guidelines. So they don't cover the most evidence-based practical inhaler therapies. And that is criminal. I don't know who's dictating the formulary for the inhaled drugs for COPD and asthma, but the things that save lives in these respiratory conditions are across the board not being covered. And the inhalers often run into the range of $350 to $400 each, which lasts one, one inhaler lasts less than 30 days. Uh, so it's, it's highway robbery. Yeah, well, I'm not sure what to say to that. I mean, it's really disgusting. It's totally unnecessary, and it's more expensive, and adds a lot of stress and other problems for the patients, obviously, and the doctors. Absolutely. And I know that drug prices are overinflated. It feels like I'm jumping hoops for nothing because I worked in other parts of the world, and so I, I know that this is all a game. And when I feel that me and my patient is being subjected to a silly game, there's a cruelty that I cannot describe. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Given your experience and given the response that the United States has had to this pandemic, how do you think that if we had a Medicare for all system, that would have helped? the response to the pandemic, and how do you think that would have helped, well, both patients and doctors, particularly in terms of having the necessary equipment? Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Um, I would say, first and foremost, there's so many layers. Uh, number one, we know that COVID-19 disproportionately affects people with chronic lung disease, heart disease, and diabetes. So right off the bat, People who are affected with these conditions, whose conditions are under poor control because they, they're, you know, the insurance companies are against them, they haven't had proper care, COVID-19 is just going to wipe them out. So that's number one. If we had a single-payer health system that actually took care of patients and took care of the preventative and primary care, we wouldn't be in the situation that we are with people dying because they have all these other illnesses that are untended. Um, you know, it's funny that I'm working in a hospital where I'm not entirely sure where the money is coming for this COVID care. We've just been sort of told that it's, I mean, in any case, I'm working in a public hospital, so they're funded by CMS and they're, you know, they're a inner city hospital that my colleagues, as I was onboarding, they were like, ah, we don't even worry about what the, the, you know, the charges and everything. We just deliver patient care. So I'm in a hospital that prioritizes patient care over money. And that's, you know, and they're an inner city hospital. It's not a fancy place to be. I'm going to tell you that, but there's heart there and there's not the same worry about like that private sector insurance thing. Um, but what I would say is that um, walking into a scenario where I don't, where specifically for COVID-19, I don't have to worry about, can this person afford something? If I'm going to send them for a CT chest because we need further clarification on that x-ray, are they, are they going to get billed? Are they going to get bankrupted for that? If I'm, admitting them to the ICU, 
what's is going to be millions of dollars that their family is going to face, you know, and in this particular crisis, because I've been told there's sort of blanket coverage for COVID-19, I'm actually not worrying about that. Now, God forbid we find out that all of a sudden bills start coming into patients after the fact, but I can tell you right now that in COVID-19, for COVID-19 patients, we are moving people through as if there was universal coverage. We are not thinking about coverage. We're not thinking about ability to pay. We're just, we're just delivering care according to what is needed and what is evidence-based. So if we could sort of expand that and practice medicine across the board like that, it would be a huge relief. Now, what would happen if this were a single-payer system in terms of um, protective equipment? Um, I'm not a, I'm not an administrator, um, in, in procurement, but looking at Canada, um, you know, one of Canada's big problems in terms of PPE is the fact that the U S is blocking shipment of the stuff that we bought. So that's our biggest problem is the U S is blocking, uh, export of N95 masks, the ones that we paid for. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to manufacture N95 masks in Canada, but the response in Canada, because it's a single-payer system, is, a, is very unified. You don't have these huge discrepancies where one hospital is out of this and the other county is out of that and this city doesn't know what they're doing. And um, so there's a uniform because it's a, it's sort of at the end of the day, it's provincially laid out, but there's still a sort of an overlying system in Canada. So um, I know Canadians are talking about concerns like Ontario saying they're going to run out of PPE in a week after their their big crest hits. I don't think Canada's going to face the shortages of PPE anywhere near where uh, New York City or other jurisdictions are facing. Um, the, the, the response in the United States is absolutely piecemeal, very disorganized, lots of contradiction. Again, because there's just so much fragmentation because of the lack of a unifying single-payer system. And one of the things it sounds like in Canada the emphasis is more on the patient, and since they don't have to worry about the other issues, doctors are freer to actually concentrate on care. Would that be a fair assessment? That's how I feel. As I look back on not only my past experience in working in Canada, but also how Canada is responding to COVID-19, um, you know, there will always be, you know, BS in a system. Mm -hmm. You can never get rid of that. But in Canada, there is just so much free field to be able to look at how do we deal with individual patients? How do we deal with the health system so that, you know, we can deal with everybody who needs care? Um, it's absolutely, there's so much free space to do the medicine that we trained for, to actually think about patients. Well, what a radical idea. You think that the <laughs> healthcare system should put patients first. Hmm. I'll have to suggest that someplace. <laughs> You know, it's so funny is that it's so funny how insurance companies have done such a good PR job just to make the public think that they care. And and one thing that really bothers me is this um, this this real corporate kind of messaging and brainwashing that has made Americans think that they have choice by having multiple insurance companies and that turning to a single payer system would take away their choice. And that is the biggest load of malarkey I have ever heard because if you want to see your choice taken away, try getting your, you know, your hands tied behind your back by an insurance company because you can't, you are in jail. Those guys will ruthless. They will imprison you. They will bankrupt you. Um, 
you know, in, in, in gamble, the house always wins. The casino always wins. And in the U.S., the insurance companies, the pharma companies, the imaging companies, the governments who are colluding, they always win. The patient loses, the patient is last, and the, the physician is just sort of like one step, one step uh, away from being uh, second to last. It's just so clear to me that the American system is about profit and patients are just pawns in the game. Well, as I have said, yes, we have a great deny care system. Oh, we've got a great, oh, very well polished. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Well, I would say, um, you know, a lot of people wonder, I was just talking to somebody yesterday, actually, who said, you know, I go to this clinic and there's a new provider like every couple of months. Gosh, those, those doctors, they're just moving all the time, moving on to something better. Um, I think what the public don't understand is that we burn out um, when we are being forced to see a certain number of patients in a in a rushed time so that it stuffs the corporate coffers, um, when we have to spend hours upon hours arm wrestling with insurance companies, arm wrestling with documentation, we get burnt out. This is not what we went to, to medical school for. We want to treat patients. We want to be with our patients. When we are faced with crap, and under and under a gun, we get burnt out, and we we keep moving for greener pastures and trying to look for something that doesn't pinch us and gives us more patient time. So that's why we move. So doctors aren't moving on for money; they're moving on for less bullshit. To be to be frank, well, they're moving on so that they can actually treat the patient better. It sounds like. It is. You know, in medical training, we were told that it is our ethics, first do no harm, and you will be treating patients and giving your heart and your soul. And when I got out into the world, especially, you know, in, in the American healthcare system, that is the opposite of what I trained for. Well, and go oh, ahead. Sorry, go, on. go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to talk about my, just a brief note of the terror that I have with my own medical insurance and the complete dismay and confusion that I have as a health insurance customer. Go right ahead. So when I um, ended clinical practice three months ago, I had to go to the marketplace to get insurance for me and my husband. Um, I have never been able to understand copays, deductibles. I still don't understand this. So as, as a physician, I still don't understand my own healthcare insurance plan. So tried to go to the marketplace to get something that would be a total ripoff, but would generally, you know, save me from a bankruptcy should a catastrophic event happen. So I'm, I'm paying this ridiculous amount of money. Um, I don't understand it. I feel completely last priority. It's unfair. It's complicated. And I've run into this just kind of mild health issue that I have to follow up. So I have a $6,100 deductible. So I'm in this weird place where I'm paying a bunch of money for a premium, and now I'm having to pay maybe a couple of thousand dollars out of pocket for this kind of minor health issue that I can't sort of leave, but it's not expensive enough to cover my for my deductible to be overcome. So I'm just, I feel like I'm kind of, I'm, I feel like I'm hemorrhaging money. It is this hidden tax, this going to the marketplace, if you if you don't have an employer and you have to pay out of pocket, it is it is highway robbery 
I don't even understand it. And so I, no wonder, like millions of, of Americans are uninsured. They can't afford this. And when they do get a health plan, it ends up not covering stuff and it ends up leaving them in the lurch. Oh, that's absolutely correct. I will just add, some economists that I've talked to considered health insurance, they consider it a private tax because you have to pay it. And, it is 100%. And if you look from what I've seen, the United States, when you add in health care costs, has the second highest tax rate in the world. Um, so our taxes really aren't that low, but that's a whole nother issue. You know, it's so funny that you say that as a Canadian. I was expecting to come down to the U.S. and, oh, it would be such a breeze. I'd save all my money. I would. But, you know, as all the sneaky taxes, you know, because as I see my taxes, I'm paying off of my paychecks is Medicare. That's coming off my paycheck. So I'm paying for that. I'm also paying for my health, health insurance premiums. When I sit down and do the math, I am not paying less tax than in Canada. I'm probably paying more. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Anna, again, I want to thank you for volunteering your time for helping out during this pandemic crisis. And thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. This is my pleasure, Joe. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.